During the civil rights era, the integration of NASA helped humankind get to the moon. And now, it's helping us go even farther. We're all coming together to create the greatest rocket in the world, SLS, Space Launch System, that's going to launch. And it's because of all of those diverse minds. Coming up on the Public Radio Hour, the stories of two African-American women in leadership roles at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, Dr. Ruth Jones and Tanya Laughinghouse. I mean, this nation is diverse, and we have got to have teams, organizations that reflect that, because to me, that's how you find the best solution. So it's about being that example and being that face. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's the problem within the minorities. We don't have people that's in that position and to go and demonstrate like, hey, I'm in that place. You can do it as well. We'll talk about the importance of representation, the role of historically black colleges and universities, and how NASA is meeting diversity challenges. The Public Radio Hour is next, right after this news update. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 WLRH, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. In the next hour, as part of our Black History Month programming, I was fortunate enough to sit down and talk with two African-American women playing key roles at Marshall Space Flight Center in helping humankind get back to the moon and on to Mars. Tanya Laughinghouse is the manager of Marshall's Technology Demonstration Missions, also known at NASA by the acronym TDM. It involves a variety of projects, including propulsion, deep space optical communications, in-space robotic satellite servicing, and entry-descent landing technologies, which helped the Perseverance rover land safely on Mars. Also joining the conversation is Dr. Ruth Jones, an associate manager for Marshall Space Flight Center's Human Exploration Development and Operations, where she helps manage operations on the International Space Station and leads teams working to develop the next generation of rockets, spacecraft, and other technology that will help humans explore the solar system. As we will hear, both women had an early love of numbers and started on career paths much different than where they are today and both gained the confidence to walk that path because they saw just enough people who looked like them to make them believe that path was possible, something they hoped to do for younger generations. Dr. Jones says when she first enrolled at University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, a historically black university, working for NASA wasn't even a consideration. She thought she wanted to be an accountant, but soon discovered it wasn't going to be a good fit. So my college algebra professor, he tried to persuade me my freshman year to change my major to physics. Mm-hmm. But I was like, physics, accounting, you know, I'm in college. I'm trying to enjoy the college life. <laughs> but at the same time, I wanted to graduate with honors. So I told him, no, I'm not interested in majoring in physics. And then once I started taking the accounting classes, I was like, eh, this is kind of boring. It's not as challenging. So I went to him my junior year and told him that I would change my major to physics. But it sort of started with a love of numbers. Did you have access to a physics program in high school? Or I did was not. It just a- I mean, I took physics in high school just as a class, but mm-hmm. I never, I mean, I'm from West Holland, Arkansas, so the opportunities are very limited there. So the high school I took, highest level of math was like calculus one. And we had a physics class, but not like a a big program or anything. So once I got to college and he asked me to change my major, I mean, I did like physics in high school, but also took accounting in high school. So I was like accounting, physics, eh, accounting is a lot easier and I can do a lot more in college. So once I changed my major, he failed to tell me one thing, and that was there were no physics majors on campus. So I was the only physics major on campus. So he was the type of professor where he was going to have class if it was just me in class. So every 
day we had class just me and Dr. Mia in a real classroom. It wasn't. It no, sounds like he recruited you a little <laughs> he bit. He did. He recruited me to try uh-huh. to save the program. Ms. Lavinghouse, what about you? What was your, your initial story. start? So I grew up here in, in Huntsville, but I always wanted to be an OBGYN. That was my thing. That's all I talked about. So you also about. started somewhere else, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I'd even gotten uh, accepted to the UAB Medical School Early Acceptance Program. It provided that I went to UAB for undergrad. But it was a summer before my senior year of high school that I was selected um, by our guidance counselor at school to uh, be a part of the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center SHARP program, and that stood for Summer High School Apprenticeship Research Program. And that was six weeks that I say changed my life because I was paired with um, an engineer uh, and scientists. It was what was in the space science laboratory. Um, worked on a project for six weeks, which was working with lasers. Um, it was optical communications. Um, and what so full circle for me is the program that I manage now, we actually just launched um, a uh, technology to space called Laser Communications Relay Demonstration. It was like, you know, wow, I worked on that, you know, lasers, <laughs> my very first project at NASA as a high school student. And now that I'm launching lasers to space uh, for laser communication. So going back to that, you know, I worked with scientists and engineers who look like me, those who didn't look like me. And I was able to really visualize myself becoming an engineer, becoming a scientist. And um, it was also during that program I learned about the NASA partnership they had with Spelman College called Women in Science and Engineering. And it was a partnership to encourage underrepresented women to pursue STEM uh, careers. And so I went to Spelman, majored in chemistry, and then Georgia Tech, because it was a dual degree program, 3-2 program they called it, and majored in chemical engineering. probably because it was considered the um, the most challenging of the engineering <laughs> professions. And I've always had a very competitive spirit. And so uh, it was a huge challenge for me. But, uh, I, you know, I stuck with it and, and, um, and graduated in that. So that was, you know, what set me on my STEM path. And you both kind of touched on the next question here. And we'll stay with you, Tanya, for this. Uh, Tell us more specifically about one of your early teachers or mentors that helped guide you onto this new career path that that maybe you didn't start there, but now you're like, okay, this might be a good direction for me. Tell us about Mm. maybe one person or two people that that jump out for you. Right. So I would... Like I said, I have always, always enjoyed math and science, but I think in terms of engineering, it was probably um, probably a um, chemistry teacher in college. I- I'm sorry, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved all the math and sciences, but I think chemistry really stood out for me. Um, and Mr. Larry Smith, um, rest in peace. Um, but he just made... Um, chemistry so much fun. I mean, stoichiometry and, um, you know, um, all the all the parts of chemistry I just fell in love with. And so it felt like a really natural progression for me when I got to college and needed to declare a major that it would be chemistry and then, you know, conversely, chemical engineering uh, during the second half of the program. And Dr. Jones, you mentioned one person who recruited you. Is You want to tell us more about that person, or was there perhaps another mentor along the way that helped guide you? Yeah, I would say it would be two. 
um, my high school algebra teacher, Mr. Ernest Simpson, he motivated me a lot because when we were in his class, I mean, he was very strict. I mean, you could work mm-hmm. out the problem. You leave off a negative sign, he'd taken off like 10 to 20 points. And we're like, Mr. Simpson, it's just <laughs> a negative sign. He was like, well, you know, this was the time, too, when the space shuttle had blown up Challenger in 1986. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, you know, that negative sign could have caused the space shuttle to blow up. And I was just like, eh, you, you, you know, you're going overboard. You know, we want those points. Because I was very competitive in high school, so I wanted a 100 on all of my tests. So. Mm-hmm. Leaving off a negative sign. Yeah, I'm like, man, I went from an A to a B. Like, you're messing up my GPA. (laughs) But now that I work in for NASA, I can see that you have to be very, very, you know, meticulous and very, you know, you have to pay attention because there is no room for errors in this in this industry. And I would say that Dr. Mia, he's the one that just really pushed me. He saw my mathematical skills in, in college, and he was just like, you need to major in physics. But, you know, I was like, eh, I'm trying to enjoy the college life. I want to graduate with honors. And But when he saw that in me, and I and I knew I could do it, it's mm-hmm. just I wanted to take the easy route out. And I'm glad that he did see that potential in me, and he convinced me to change my major to physics because I really do love it. And once I changed my major to physics, that's when I sought out internships with NASA. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got into the NASA arena because, like I said, I'm from West Holland, Arkansas. There are no science. I mean, there are some scientists there, but it's not a big place like Huntsville. We hear the Rocket City. You see NASA all the time. You have all these space industries around. We don't have that in West Helena. So I just had mentors that, you know, people that went to college and I'm, you know, trying to do what they're doing. But mm-hmm. as far as a real life engineer, I had never met one. You know, real life scientists, besides my, you know, instructors in high school, but I don't know if they were considered as scientists. Because most of them were just teachers, you know. Sometimes they say, in order to become science, you have to have your PhD and so much research and papers and things like that. But I would say, Doctor, er- I mean, Mr. Ernest Simpson and Doctor Muhammad Mia were my two uh, mentors and very instrumental in me becoming a physics major and also working for NASA. Uh, I ask that question to a lot of people, and it's mm-hmm. interesting how often they find someone from the high school days that, mm-hmm. that really sort of lit that fire. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, in terms of when you were in high school and the sen- juniors and seniors that are coming out now, do you see any any difference? Is, is there any change in the approach to how um, people are encouraged to get into STEM fields? Or, or, or like you said, you didn't necessarily have a lot of people who who did that were you in high school do you see a difference between high school when when you were coming out and the students that are coming out now yeah i think it's a big difference and 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 this was before COVID, but now that we're in the COVID, it's even worse because you know everything is virtual and they don't get to see and they don't, don't get to visit like high schools and colleges like they used to and i think that we as scientists and people that are in stem it's left up to us to go back to those places to show ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think if we, I, I mean, I do, I have like a, I call it a science day that I do in my hometown every year where I go and talk to the students and let them know, hey, math and science is very important. Mm-hmm. And if I came from the same high school, the same city, same school, some of the same teachers are still there. And if I can work for NASA, you all can too. And you'll be amazed at just how that one little trip made a difference in some, not all of them, because some of them just like, eh, whatever. But there's right. one or two that are very, very interested, like, wow, how did you do it? And how did you know about that? You know, how can I learn more about that? So it's about, you know, being that example and being that face. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's the problem within the minorities. We don't have people that that's in that position and to go and demonstrate like, hey, I'm, I'm in that place. You can do it as well. Right. We see ourselves and more so in, you know, athletics or 
music industry because that's what's portrayed in media. But you don't see that many black physicists. You don't see that many black you know, scientists or engineers. So it's not publicized. So when they see you in that position, then they can see themselves doing it as well. And Tanya, you said that mattered to you. Oh, absolutely. You you know, when I was at Spelman, one of the wonderful things about the sense of community there was bringing, um, you know, we just had this steady diet of amazing people who came on campus to talk to us. Um, You know, as a NASA Wise Scholar, Mae Jemison was invited to come speak to wow. our, our freshman cohort. And, now, there's an know, example. Wow. Yes. Oh, my word. And uh, she was amazing. And we had someone who was a little bit further along in our program who was already at Georgia Tech and working on her Ph.D. in chemical engineering. Her name was, I'll never forget, Dr. Jocelyn Simpson. Uh, she went on to have a career with NASA and then um, private industry. But you know, she was a chemistry, chemical engineering major, and I was able to, you know, visualize myself. Right. And, you know, she she has gotten to this point. That's where I want to go. And, and it can happen, you know. And she talked about the hiccups along the way. All of that is, is just incredibly vital and important. I mean, and Ruth, you're talking about the... Uh, the pandemic, I've actually seen where it has been a benefit in terms of More getting visibility. people like like yeah. you and I talking to students in in ways that we you know really haven't That's been true. able to do before. I just spoke to a group of students in Japan yesterday evening, invited by a, a former classmate at Spelman who's teaching over there, who wanted to get together some of her classmates who are in STEM fields to talk to her students. I did that yesterday. Um, talked to um, Gary, Indiana. Um, school district who invited me to speak to them last year, you know, in the height of the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, I, I I totally understand what you're saying right. in terms of the physical, um, but there it also has, there's been some silver linings, of course, where we're That's able true. to, um, you know, touch and, and share our story right. with people and still get the benefit. Yeah, that's really interesting because the the message does seem to be more powerful, at least to like you know older folks mm-hmm. like us when it's delivered in person. But when it's virtual, the reach is you know pretty much anywhere where there's an internet connection. Yes, that, that's, right, that's true, right. So uh, both of you have alluded to the fact that uh, you both attended at least one historically black college and university also known as HBCUs, uh, Miss Laughing House. You mm-hmm. were an alumni at Spelman College. And Dr. Jones, you got your Ph.D. in physics at Alabama A&M. Um, so first of all, was it important to each of you to attend and graduate an HBCU and why? And can you tell us of any connections, and you may have both kind of touched on this already, mm-hmm. can you tell us of any connections between your school and NASA that helped you find your current career path? And, and Dr. Jones, let's come back to you. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think that it was, to me, it was very important to go to HBCU. And that's because you get that that family feeling, and you also get that, that sense of building your confidence, self-esteem. And like I said, I was the only physics major on campus, didn't know it at the time until I actually got <laughs> into that, that field. But as far as just going to HBCU, I, I really wanted to experience that. And it has been great. I mean, I had some great professors great mentors, great advisors. And I think going to HBCU, it helps. But I, I think the only thing that HBCUs, HBCUs lack in comparison to PWIs is the laboratories. We don't have the latest and the greatest labs, but as far as professors, we have some of the best professors. And the HBCUs prepare you for the life after college. 
So me, myself, I've changed the acronym of HBCUs. To me, it means helping blacks compete universally. Mm -hmm. And it really does because it instills in you confidence. And, you know, being a minority in STEM is very challenging. And then when you're a woman, that's like another challenge. And then sometimes when you're younger, that's another challenge. But when you have that self-confidence in yourself and you have people that believes in you and you have that support group, it makes it a lot easier than if you did not have that support and that confidence. So I think it's very important. Did you see a connection? Because there are there are definitely some historical connections between Alabama, A&M, uh, and how the civil rights movement really gave a boost to that program. It brought in professors and you know, NASA was really required to place a focus on recruiting and training mm-hmm. uh, in these upcoming generations to be part of what was going on. Can you tell us about any connections that you may have seen? Yes, there were. When I was in the master's program and the Ph.D. program at A&M, there were some professors who actually did research for NASA. And it was doing the crystal growth PVT, physical vapor transport. So they had some collaborations with NASA being a student there, I got a chance to work with that professor and then, you know, bring it over to NASA and I was able to work with them. And when I first started working for NASA, it was all voluntary. You know, my professor was part of it and I was like, oh, I want to go over there and help. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it just led. So that connection and just being able to be around, you know, real scientists, I mean, who work for NASA. I mean, that was my dream was to work for NASA. So to actually work with people who have written books, who've written papers, who have patents. I mean, one of my I guess mentors at that time, because I was in the space science laboratories as well. So Dr. Donald Frazier, I mean, that man is awesome. He's a genius. He is. He is a genius. And it's like he's so personable. You know, sometimes you think when you meet these scientists, they're just like, oh, they're kind of nerdy. They don't want to speak to you. But he was so encouraging. And anytime I, you know, Dr. Frazier, how do I do this? Or I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And, you know, he just gave me so many encouraging words. And he built my self-confidence again, because, you know, when you're, the only one, because there was plenty of times I was the only female in the meeting or the only black mm-hmm. in the meeting. Mm-hmm. More than likely, I was the youngest. Mm-hmm. So it's like a triple minority. So sometimes you feel like, man, what am I doing here? You know, and it's you kind of feel intimidated. But at the same time, you feel empowered. So it's just because like. Because you have a chance. Because You're I have a chance. There, yeah. And I'm and I'm in the room with them. So it's like, okay, it's something about me. I'm in this room with them. So I must deserve to be here. But, you know, it. it you know, in the back of your mind, it's just like, man, this is, I don't see anybody that looks like me. So that's why I think it's very important as minority leaders that we have to reach back and pull others to the table with us and bring us, you know, bring more and more minorities into the STEM program. Because when we leave, we got to keep, you know, it has to keep going. And if we Absolutely. leave, we don't bring anybody in, then it's going to continue to go back to a white man's world, you know. And I think now we have a lot of Leaders, women leaders, a lot of minority leaders. That's, you know, African-Americans. we got Asian leaders now, Hispanic leaders. So I think, you know, it's becoming more diverse at NASA. And I think that's because they're being very intentional about doing that. And Ms. Laughinghouse, tell us about uh, Spelman. You, you wanted to go there. You wanted to graduate. Did you see any direct connections that led you to where you are today? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, my, I think my first uh, visit to Spelman, I came away from there like, that's where I'm going. You know, <laughs> it was before I got the scholarship. I mean, it was like I felt that place was made for me. And uh, so many feel that uh, after <laughs> after you you go to campus or, or you visit the campus. And it's just because, you know, in high school, I was 
in a sense, considered the cream of the crop. You know, I, I graduated salutatorian from high school. But when I went to Spelman, it was like I was going to school with 1,800 other Tanyas <laughs> who were just as motivated, if not more, than me. It's like going right. pro. Everybody's, everybody's <laughs> exactly. elite. You know? yes. Right, yeah. right. I mean, and I, I loved, you know, leading. And, and in high school, I was president of Student Government Association. I got to Spelman. I, I probably lost my first five elections, you know. <laughs> and it was character building. Right. But it was such a profound um, environment to be around so much excellence and but it was a nurturing environment. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King's sister was one of our English professors. Wow. Um, you know, she and and so the the history, the legacy, the traditions, you know, I came away. I remember my first semester coming home, my mother was like, Look at you. You know, you just <laughs> unapologetically Tanya, you know, and and that's what we want to instill, that confidence so mm-hmm. that when you go out into the world, um, you know, you do feel like you, you should have a seat at the table. There is no doubt in your mind. Right. There may be doubt in other minds, but that's okay. <laughs> you'll, you'll prove that you are meant to be there. And so, you know, and that's kind of the way that I lead my life now when I'm given an assignment or take on a new responsibility. I want to knock it out of the park so yes. that the next Tanya <laughs> is, uh, is considered, is actually brought into the trade space by those who, who make decisions. So, Tanya, let's stay with you. This is for you also, Dr. Mm-hmm. Jones. But as specifically as you can, was there a pivotal moment as you were a student or maybe early in your career that really helped you step up and work your way along this career path? Was there a pivotal moment that you can point to? Oh, my goodness, yes. And I share this with my uh, students that I talk to all the time because um, sometimes we have to get out of our own heads <laughs> on this on this journey. Um, and I remember my very first chemical engineering class at Georgia Tech. It was taught by the professor who wrote the book. And I felt invisible in that class. And I think it was my very first time ever feeling invisible. And it was not a good feeling. And I could work those problems, you know, just you know, go home, go into my dorm room, work those problems. Every time I would get to a test, I would freeze. And I knew it was in my head. And I struggled that first semester. I actually did not pass that class. And so I came home with my tears, my tail between my legs. You know, and my you pa- knew you could do it. I yeah. knew I could yeah. do it. And my parents, you know, let me cry it out. And then we're like, all right, sister, sit up. <laughs> let, you know, you've got this. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to get out of your head. And my parents reminded me, the Lord did not bring you this far to leave you. You are going to do fine. And so I went back that second semester and was so motivated to get back in there. And that's the problem, because so often it's that experience that takes us out of the the race. And you, you know, don't come back. You don't come back. You're like, this wasn't for me. You know, I have never made an F in my life. And that was my (laughs) jumping over. Oh, my God. It was it was devastating until I realized that I have to understand I am meant to be here and I can do this. And so I went back the second semester, retook that class, made an A and then went on, you know, to finish the program. So that was the moment where I realized I really needed this. It wasn't a cakewalk, as I told you. I, <laughs> I really chose chemical engineering because it really didn't come naturally. I had to work at it. Um, but I realized I can still do it. 
Dr. Jones, I have a feeling you had a similar moment somewhere along the way. Can you tell us about I, it? I did. You know, at UAPB being the only physics major, I really couldn't gauge, you know, how smart I was or how well I was doing. I mean, you know, sometimes I made a B, sometimes I got an A, but I wanted to know, like, how am I doing compared to Tanya or compared, you mm-hmm. know, to you? But once I got to A&M, and then, you know, there was, you know, had Asian students and had some Indian students. Then we had students from MIT who come to A&M for grad school, Stanford. And I'm just like, oh, my God, these people are smart. They come from big universities. I just came from a little, you know, a little HBCU. And I felt at that time that I wasn't, I didn't belong there. I felt like, man, my school probably didn't prepare me for this because mm-hmm. I was the only physics major. But once I got in the class and I was competing with them, I was like, oh, okay, I, I think I got this. I, I know my stuff. And it's so Now that I look back on it, my professors were preparing me for graduate school because Dr. Charter, he only gave a midterm and a final. I'm just like, what in the world? We're covering like 12 chapters and we got to have a test on 12 chapters. He's like, oh, that's how they do in grad school. I'm preparing for grad school. I'm like, who said I was going to grad school? You know, I'm trying to get out of undergrad right now. So once I got to graduate school, a lot of the students were complaining. They was like, man, I can't believe I'm only having two tests. I was like, I did that in undergrad. So, you know, I felt like, yeah, I, I got this. Mm-hmm. So once I started competing with the other students and, you know, sometimes making higher grades. I remember one class, which was classical mechanics, I was the only person that made an A out that class. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. I know my stuff. My school really prepared me. I called my professor. I was like, thank you, guys. You really prepared me for mm-hmm. this. But at the time, you know, you, you're going through it by yourself. You don't really know. So I think that was my pivotal point. Like, I deserve to be here. I deserve to be a physics major, and I deserve this master's and this Ph.D. So I just worked harder and harder because I wanted to be at the top. <laughs> Dear listeners, you're listening to the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. We're talking with Tanya Laffinghouse, a program manager at Marshall Space Flight Center's Technology Demonstration Missions. Also talking with Dr. Ruth Jones, an associate manager for Marshall's Human Exploration Development and operations. So let's kind of change gears a little bit now. We've talked about the past. Let's talk about the present and the future. Uh, And Dr. Jones, we'll we'll stick with you on this one. Um, Tell us something that excites you about your current work and feel completely free. You are on public radio, so you can geek out a little bit and and dive deep if you want to. Tell us something amazing about what's happening with you and your team at Marshall Space Flight Center that's really fueling your fire. Okay. And there's a lot. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I read up a little bit. I was like, well, okay, there's a lot here. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and human explorations, operations office, there's a lot that's going on right now. I mean, we have Artemis. You know, that's our next mission we're trying to launch. So we support all of the human space flights. So, I mean. And listeners couldn't see Tanya, but she gave it the fist <laughs> like, pump over here. Yes. Yeah, we haven't launched in a while. So actually being a part of that is just so amazing. And, and it, I'm just fortunate to be a part of that. And then also supporting the International Space Station. We have ECLIS, and, you know, that's the, basically in short terms how to, you know, the, the, the bathroom for the astronauts, I would say. <laughs> you know, right. they filter their water because you're only, you know, allowed to take so much water up there. So they have to keep filtering the water out. And so, I mean, it's a lot that's going on. I, I think what fuels me is just being able to work around so many smart people, astronauts. You know, it's like, man, we get to meet a lot of different people on a whole lot of different levels. Well, what do you get from that, being around people, really talented, intelligent people like that who are motivated like you? What do you I, get out I, of I that? I get inspired just to be in the place. I mean, like I said, I come from a small town, so to be in this venue and to be around such amazing people and to work at such a great place like NASA, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. I just want everybody to know that, you know, you can do anything that you want to be and do. 
You just have to believe in yourself and just to have a good support group. And I just think being in this place, in this space, I'm I'm fortunate to be here. And I just want to give back, you know, to my community, to, you know, society, and just let people know they can do it as well. The Slapping House, something amazing? <laughs> yes. So um, about five years ago, I left Materials and Processes where we supported human exploration. We, we were, I was working on the solid rocket boosters for the shuttle and made a switch over to um, the Space Technology um, uh, Mission Directorate. And so we, uh, our mantra is technology drives exploration, right? So we are, um, you know, we kind of look across and see, you know, what are the future technologies that are needed for future missions? And those are the technologies that are brought into our program for us to mature. Um, These are led by teams that are at other NASA centers across the country and also led by industry partners. And so, you know, everyone's goal is for their the project, the the mission to have its day in the sun, either be launched to space or uh, culminate in a big ground demonstration test in space-like environments. and so, um, you know, what we're, what we're doing is we're demonstrating these technologies so that they can be infused into, into future missions. So we're, we're kind of proving that they can work, and then they'll be picked up um, by future missions or by industry partners. And so, um, you know, two of, the, two of the amazing technologies that we just launched, um, well, I'll say just launched, but were launched as part of the Mars Perseverance uh, rover mission in, in 2020. And two of our technologies are actually on that mission, Terrain Relative Navigation. Navigation. That's an entry descent landing technology, which was actually, it wasn't a demonstration. It was actually operational, which meant it enabled the rover to have a safe landing on the surface of Mars. It kind of takes a visual map of the surface, which is very, you know, hazardous and, you know, lots of cliffs and lots of um, craters. Um, and it was able to take a visual map and to find the safest place to land near the Jezero crater, which is where the science, you know, the samples that are right. being taken. And so it enabled it to, to have its, I mean, I think it was within five meters of where it was supposed to land. I mean, that is crazy. And it was the smoothest landing of a rover ever on the surface of Mars. And it was because of that. Uh, part of that TRN, uh, Terrain Relative Navigation. And then we have a second uh, technology, which is a demonstration, but it's like a mini chemical plant called MOXIE, Mars Oxygen in Situ um, uh, Resource Experiment, MOXIE. And um, it actually takes the air from the Martian atmosphere, which is very rich in carbon dioxide. There's not much oxygen. Um, And it takes that air into that little mini chemical electrolysis plant, and it converts it to oxygen. And and we've had about eight runs so far since it has um, been in operation on Mars, and we've produced about two hours of breathable oxygen. And so it's like the size of a toaster oven, but, you know, we will scale it up, um, you know, to generate oxygen, and not only for the astronauts, to be able to to live and breathe and and explore on Mars, but we'll also be able to scale it up so that we're producing enough oxygen for rocket fuel to make it back to Earth, um, you know, in in the future. So, I mean, just being a part of these, you know, um, cutting edge, cross cutting technologies um, is extremely impactful to me as manager of this program. More minorities and more women are playing key roles in NASA and other science and technology jobs. 
where are you both still seeing some challenges and how do those challenges shape what you do as leaders uh, at Marshall Space Flight Center? They're looking at each other. They're both. They're both. <laughs> no, after you, after you. So, um, you know, I think it's extremely important um, as leaders that we take the bull by the horn, really, and lead the charge in terms of encouraging, motivating, uh, promoting talent that we see in a sense, becoming sponsors um, and bringing people into the trade space who aren't normally in that trade space to hiring managers or to to whoever. Um, but and not only that, providing career developing opportunities. I was considered for so many opportunities when I first came to NASA. I wasn't a fresh out. Like I said, I came about eight years after I graduated from college. And so I was you know, given some some roles that were high visibility, high priority type roles. And because of that, I was tapped for some leadership development programs. Um, and this is one of the things that I absolutely love about NASA and, and Marshall Space Flight Center in particular is that I've always been in areas I felt seen, I felt appreciated, I felt noticed. And so that is you know, really one of the areas that um, I see as my responsibility to make sure that as a leader, my folks know that they are seen, that they're noticed, that they're appreciated, um, and that they can bring their whole selves to work. I mean, I have mission managers who manage their teams, and every month we have a monthly review where all the mission managers come to present the status of their projects, their, you know, the the full status of their projects. And before they start talking about the project, everyone, and it's, and, and it's, it's a tr- tradition our group loves, is that everyone starts off, the first page of their presentation, their package, is personal pictures of what's going on in their life, you know, new pets, (laughs) you know, family, you know, trip that they took. And, you know, we're talking about that before we even get into the work, you know. And I think especially during this pandemic, you know, during this time where we're just seeing the balance between work and family just, you know, I don't even call it work-life balance anymore. I just call it life. It's just, it's yeah. just life. Right. And, and you, know, you know, we're dealing with all types of things while we're working. We're dealing with, with parents who are sick, with children who are sick. And we've got to be able to um, give people the space to deal with, with what's going on. And so I, I want my folks to know that, you know, I don't just appreciate them for what they're bringing to the table, to the mission, to the work, that they're valued and appreciated for who they are. And so, you know, that's a small thing, but, you know, it's it's huge at the same time, okay. you know. It's a two-way street. I think, um, you know, we were coming up, one of the things I wish I had realized was to take on mentors earlier in my career and not that I didn't have mentors, but I think I could have had more if I had just reached out because I know now when, when people reach out to me, I am excited to share about them what I'm doing. And I, and I think part of me was like, they're so busy. They don't have time for me, you know, and 
that attitude, I, I want I want folks coming into the workforce now to just be bold, you know, be much bolder than 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 I was. I don't like the word networking so much as is I like building relationships, you know, because I feel like that is what's lasting. You know, we can all go and make a contact and, you know, beat somebody. But when you really establish relationships, you know, that to me is what makes the difference between when folks are looking for someone to lead lead a project. And Dr. Jones, maybe some of the challenges you see perhaps for minorities and women and how, how that affects your leadership role. Just to echo what Tanya was saying, I think mentoring is a, a big part of it. And not only should we have mentors, but we as African-American leaders, we need to be mentors to the future generations. And you have to be intentional about it. And you know, sometimes mm-hmm. people are like, oh, I'll be your mentor. And then it's like, oh, I'm too busy. But you have to be intentional about it and just make sure that you reach out to those young And that ties into what Tanya was saying. She she said she wished she had reached for because she wasn't sure whether those people were open <laughs> right, to it. Yeah. Right. But I, I'm doing it in reverse. Mm-hmm. I think right. we have to go out and, and, you know, if you see somebody that's new in your group that's younger, you know, call them to the office because oh, sometimes yeah. they feel that, you know, you're a manager. I can't come to you because you're up here. I'm down here. And as a manager, I said, no, we're all equal. You know, I just have a title. But we're all here to do the same thing, and that's to get the job done, have mission success. And I think once you open that door and let them know that you're on the same level, then they feel more open to you to come to you and ask you more questions and to ask you, well, can you be my mentor? Or sometimes they don't even ask to be the mentor. They just look at you as like, okay, I know I can go talk to Dr. Ruth, or I know I can go talk to Tanya because mm-hmm. her door is always open. Mm-hmm. So I think as leaders, we have to be more open to that and to seek you know, the younger generation, let them know, hey, my door is always open. If you want to have a mentor, you know, I'm here for that. Or if I'm not the one, I can let you know, oh, well, go talk to Tanya or go talk to Tia or go talk to so-and-so, so-and-so. And And I think it makes it easier for them because sometimes, I know when I first came in, it's kind of intimidating. You know, Mm -hmm. you're young, you just see all these smart people, you just think like, oh, man, I mean, I I don't think I'm smart enough. All the acronyms. All the acronyms. You know, you're just like, what is (laughs) that? Acronyms alone. You know, you're sitting in meetings like, oh, what is that? Taking those like, oh, resource that. And all you know is like, resource that, what is this? What is, you know, because you don't know. But once, you know, like I said, Dr. Frazier was my first mentor Mm -hmm. at NASA and he was just so open. I was like, man, if I ever get to that status, or even before then, like now, even when I was a, just an employee and not a manager, you know, whenever I saw new people come in, I go up to them and introduce myself to them and like, hey, if there's anything you need, let me know. You know, I probably can't help you, but I can direct you to who who can help me. That's right. And I mm-hmm. think if we're more open like that, I think it can make the world a whole lot better, right? A whole lot easier, and make people just feel at home. When she said talking about building relationships, that's building those relationships because then they don't feel like they're here and you're there it's not like that right we're all here to do the same job and just we want mission success and if i could just add you know one of the things like you know i think as leaders it's so important to create that environment where um you know my team knows they are encouraged to question things Mm -hmm. you know like you know it's we make a lot of decisions together um, and we deliberate a lot on, on a lot of things, but, you know, for people to understand that it's okay to disagree, right? you know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to question the easy, what you consider an easy answer. Um, and I think it's, it's my job as a leader to help people find their voice. You know, sometimes right. it's always the people who are willing to, you know, 
um, who have an opinion <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and speak up and the ones who speak up first who get, you know, the most notice or or, you know, that's the direction that they go. I want to know what that person in the back is thinking. Yeah. And so I asked them, you know, and and, you know, it's amazing how you you can actually watch someone finding their voice because, you know, sometimes all it takes is you know, putting an idea out there and everyone like, yeah, that's a good idea that just, you know, it just, you know, it changes your whole perspective. And I think as leaders, we have got to be able to um, look for, you know, we talk about all the time, diversity of thought, you -hmm. know, having people on your team that are from different perspectives, um, uh, different backgrounds who have different perspectives, um, you know, who who are looking at things differently. I mean, that's the that's the whole point. I mean, this nation is diverse yes. and we have got to have teams, organizations that reflect that, because to me, that's how you find the best solution. You know, um, mm-hmm. I remember um, um, Robert Lightfoot, who used to be our Senate director before he went to the agency to become the highest civilian um, in the agency, and now he's with Lockheed Martin. But I remember him being a champion of diversity at Marshall, and he often told the story of being at A and M at a at a football game yep. representing Marshall, and he was the only one who looked like himself at the game, and he said. It was like a light bulb moment for me. Everybody was cordial to me. I enjoyed, you know, my time there, but nobody looked like me. And I thought, what are we doing to our young or our new minorities who are working here? Are we encouraging them to stay? Right. You know, do they feel like they're a part of this? And, you know, that became, he became the champion of, oh, yeah. of diversity. And it was amazing because he was a person of influence and mm-hmm. he was being intentional about how Marshall um, addresses this. And I see that to me, that has grown since then because, you know, during, during 2020, the whole summer of, um, social unrest during the pandemic, you know, so many pandemics that were being felt in the African-American community. And Marshall took the lead in having dialogues, you know, those are powerful for me, where we all came together to talk about, um, you know, how we felt about this. Organizations did it in in a small scale, but we also came together as as um, as a center and, you know, shared experiences. There were a lot of tears, but people felt heard and seen and, uh, and understood, I think, some for the maybe for the first time, um, you know, the, the way that they are um, uh, supervisors are being supported. You know, how do you, you know, I went to a session called How to Lead uh, in, During Times of Social Unrest mm-hmm. at NASA, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, because they realize that this is so important um, for not just the workforce, but for those who are managing and and people being vulnerable with each other. I'm a manager. I don't know what to say. You know, I feel like if I say something, I may say the wrong thing. You know, being able to come together and and talk about that, Mm -hmm. I think, is just pivotal. And so that's one of the things that I appreciate so much about about NASA. And then just to piggyback off of that, Mm -hmm. HP has been very intentional about this diversity. And we've created a, a, it's called a unity advisory team. 
And so that's a team of contractors and civil servants, mm-hmm. and it's just diverse throughout the whole organization. And we're there to help talk about issues, you know, mm-hmm. like social unrest or anything that's going on within the organization. No managers are on this team. It's all employees. We want to know everything mm-hmm. or, you know, much as they can possibly tell us. And we're trying to improve the, the culture within HP. So this is not it's not going to be a fad. This is we're, I mean, Joseph and Ginger, they're being very intentional about this. And the employees were very excited. When we sent out the email, you know, asking for volunteers, we got like 35 volunteers. This is in addition to your regular job. Mm-hmm. But it was so important to them, they wanted to be a part of the team. But we couldn't have a team that large. So we had, you know, we chose like 15 people. But mm-hmm. I'm just so thankful that Marshall is one of those centers that's being very intentional about diversity and wanting Absolutely. to have the, the best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I tell people all the time, diversity, I mean, you just look at a box of coloring crayons. You know, all the crayons are different colors. That's mm-hmm. our diversity. But when you look at the size of each one of those crayons in the box, they're the same size. That's equity. But when we use those different colors and create a masterpiece, then that's inclusion. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what NASA's doing, especially Marshall. They're getting mm-hmm. people from HBCUs, underrepresented minority institutions, PWIs, and we're all coming together to create the greatest rocket in the world, SLS, Space Launch System, that's going to launch. And it's because of all of those diverse minds that we've done, and we create this masterpiece, which is SLS. And when it launches, it's going to be a great day. So I'm looking forward to I it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So sorry we got off path. No, that was great. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Ruth Jones and Tanya Livinghouse, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. Uh, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us and the listeners. I have one more question before we go. So we have been doing uh, a lot of programming this month uh, around Black History Month, and I would like to close with uh, your thoughts on why it's important for NASA to recognize Black History Month. Obviously, uh, the agency's history, I mean, and you alluded to this earlier in the, in the conversation, uh, it was very much grounded almost well, exclusively, and white men being in control, the system was set up to perpetuate that. Uh, eventually, the doors were cracked open as the people whose skills were needed to, to progress in the civil rights movement. We've touched on that as well, helped push the doors open further. And now you're in a position where women and minorities have been able to find leadership roles and, and have clearer pathways coming out of high school and colleges and universities uh, to find these internships and, the, and these jobs. So as we move forward, why is it important that NASA as an agency looks back and looks ahead? And why is it important uh, to celebrate uh, Black History Month? And I'll let either one of y'all uh, jump on that one. Okay, I, I'll take it this time <laughs> since you went first last time. Okay. But I, I, I think it's important that NASA honors Black History Month because we have contributed a lot to NASA. And I think that not only just to be recognized for our work, but like I said, diversity, it's not, all, it used to be a white man's world, but now it's, you know, it's getting broader and broader. You got blacks, you got Asians, you got Indians, you got all different types. But I think it's very important for NASA to recognize the African-Americans and our contributions into what we have contributed to NASA. And, you know, NASA has a lot of employee resource groups, and those are groups that are, who are underrepresented. And so that's what I like about NASA and like about Marshall. They make sure that they try to include and make and make the whole center aware of what the minorities are doing. 
You know, not just African American. Like we have, you know, Hispanic Month, and we have, you know, Asian Pacific Month. So we're recognizing all the minorities within NASA, and I think it's very important because we contribute to it as well as, you know, the majority. And I think it's very important for them to recognize the African Americans because, you know, for so long we've been left out of the the books of what, how we've contributed to NASA. You know, like. I said in another interview the other day, Katherine Johnson, I just found out about her when Hidden Figures came out. Mm-hmm. And that's sad that I worked for NASA and really had never heard about her, mm-hmm. but I hadn't. Mm-hmm. And she was a hidden figure, like they said. I mean, that was the perfect name. I mean, she contributed to NASA, but we never heard about that. You know, you hear about, you know, Mae Jemison, she went to the moon, I mean, mm-hmm. went to space. But you, I never heard about, before Mae Jemison, I had never heard about any other females that had contributed to the NASA. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you may have, but I, I did not. And so I think it's very important for them to highlight, you know, what we what we've done and how we've contributed to the space industry. Yeah, I absolutely did not hear. (laughs) And I was just saying uh, the other day um, that I felt actually cheated when I did hear about Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson. That's that's really amazing to hear. And it's just an example of. If no one tells the story, no one knows the story. You know? exactly. Absolutely. And I have a, um, a proud um, fellow Spelman alum who actually worked for NASA. Um, she's retired now in government and community relations, Rosa Kilpatrick. And she said, when I was coming up, I, f- I feel like I truly missed out in terms of hearing about Catherine's story right. and the and the other lady's story and I mean they're just a subset right of the, exactly of the of the many women but you know for people to have been able to grab onto that especially during the challenges of their STEM journey their yes. educational journey and say they were able to do it. I mm-hmm. can do it too. Exactly. That is profound. You know you, that the the representation, seeing yourself in someone and and in a position or or uh, to achieve great things, and that's why I think it's so important. Back to your question about NASA celebrating Black History Month, because um, there's so many people that we know, but there's even more that we don't, don't know, exactly. and it is so important not just for our community but for other communities yes. to understand the excellence and the achievements of, of black Americans, um, which I think is so important for people of influence, mm-hmm. people who um, are in the positions to make decisions to actually include, include us right. in, that, in that trade space um, uh, for, for considerations. I mean, you know, we're, look, we're talking about the um, Supreme Court nominee now. And, and I find it interesting that there is so much emphasis on, you know, um, on, on, the, on the color of the nominees, not so much that they are more than qualified to right. be there. And for, for generations, they have not been considered um, to be a a Supreme Court justice. And so that is what we're talking about. We're talking about making sure that we've got a pipeline of qualified, ready people, Mm -hmm. because it's not about just bringing them in. It's about keeping them, them, keeping us there, (laughs) keeping keeping the new ones um, coming in and keeping that pipeline going. I mean, and so that NASA can continue to do the amazing things that right. that that's always done. And then not only keep us, but also have us in a positions for upward mobility. 
And I think, mm-hmm. too, if if more generations had known about the hidden figures, Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn, I think the STEM field would have been more colorized, in a sense. It would have been more blacks who probably would have went on and majored in the STEM fields. But since we never really saw ourselves in that light, it's like, eh, maybe I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. Or if you know if you don't see yourself, you you never think about it. I mean, I can remember growing up, people were like, "Well, you're gonna be a teacher, a nurse, a doctor." I mean, that's all they knew in my little hometown, you know. So it wasn't like, "Are you gonna become an engineer?" You never hear that. Are you gonna become a physicist? Mm-hmm. That was unheard of. Mm-hmm. So now that's why it's so important to me to go back to small towns and cities, and then just speak at any school that asks me to come speak to them. I'm like, I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. volunteer, just go. I'm coming. Or now, like you said, Zoom and Teams is, mm-hmm. you know, I can reach more people now. But it's very important for those students to see me in this position and that I work for NASA. And it's not to brag. It's just to let them know, hey, if I can do it, you guys can do it, too. You know, I went to UAPB, which is a small town in Arkansas. You know, mm-hmm. I come from a small town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, if I can do it, you can do it, too. So I just try to encourage them to let them know. And that's why I think it's very important, like Tanya and I both are saying, that we have to have that, that pipeline of, you know, people so they can just line up and like, oh, okay, yeah, you work for NASA. Oh, I didn't know, you know. So when they see us, then they can be us. That was Dr. Ruth Jones, an associate manager for Marshall Space Flight Center's Human Exploration Development and Operations, and Tanya Laffinghouse, manager of Marshall's Technology Demonstration Missions, speaking with us here on the Public Radio Hour on listener-supported 89.3 WLRA Huntsville Public Radio. A big thanks to them for taking time out of their busy schedules, and also thanks to our own Jesse Lou Allen and Julie Williams for lending a hand with production. Representation matters, which is one reason why Black History Month and Women's History Month, which is in March, is so important. It's easier to believe in yourself when you know the stories of others like you who have made it. Telling and remembering these stories also provides valuable context and helps us all remember that we're in this thing together and we all need each other to be the best humans we can be. One other gold nugget I got from this conversation with Miss Laughinghouse and Dr. Jones is it's important to give yourself a chance to be great and then allow yourself some grace to make mistakes because we all will at some point. Great advice for us all, no matter what we're trying to do. Remember, if you'd like to hear this or any of our other local Public Radio Hour episodes, you can explore our podcast archive at wlrh.org. Look under programs for the Public Radio Hour. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.